Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 101. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is James Dellingpole. He's an English writer, journalist and columnist who's written for a number of publications, including the Daily Mail, Daily Express, The Times, The Telegraph and The Spectator. He's an executive director for Breitbart London and has also published several novels and four political books. James, welcome to the show. Um, I suppose the place I was planning to start, we, we, we are both alums or alumni of Christchurch, Oxford, both having read English within a few years of each other. Would you say that, with the benefit of hindsight, that we both effectively experienced university as some kind of golden age, which is perhaps never going to return? Yeah, totally. And also, I think we dodged a huge bullet because I spoke to our old tutor, Peter Conrad, who is an absolute hero. And I I mean, he finds it very embarrassing, but I think like a lot of his his former undergraduates, um, I worship the guy. I think he formed me intellectually and he was great to be taught by. I don't know whether he did this to you as well, but at the beginning of each term, he would say he would he would say, I'm supposed to hand out these lecture lists. But why go to lectures when you can just read the critical textbooks and why read the critical textbooks when you can just read the texts? And this is a fantastic liberate, liberating thing to hear from one's, one's tutor. Because what he was basically, basically saying was, you needn't bother going to lectures. You needn't bother read, reading all these crits, uh, these critical studies. Uh, as you know, most people who, who study English have to have to go through this ring rule of pretending to give a shit about what other what other um, people say about an author. And actually, what what Conrad taught me early on, and maybe maybe you as well, Tim, was to be able to think for myself, to be able to think on my feet, to make a case. We didn't do any of that critical theory bullshit. That was, um, but anyway, the thing that the Conrad mentioned to me when I saw him the other day was, even then. I was unusual. I was the exception. My the, the way we taught English in Christchurch was the exception rather than the rule. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. I think that universities now, Oxford and Cambridge, certainly are are over. They just are. They're, they're, they're all about woke studies. They're all about um, what's it called, decolonizing the curriculum, mm. all sorts of nonsense. And it's it's really sad seeing the brightest and best of their generation because I'm, I'm I, there's no question to get into Oxbridge you still need to be clever and ideally not to have been to a private school but you you definitely need to have been clever and it's it's really it really saddens me seeing these really good brains which could be honed towards something worthwhile instead being corrupted by social justice warrior values it's it's funny that you mentioned I I hadn't experienced that particular insight from 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 Conradian studies, the ones about the the critical text. But what I did get via my my fiance, who, who I met at, at Christchurch at the time, was uh, I, I forget when it, exactly we had this conversation. But I must have said something like, "Oh, I've just got a I've just got a nip off to a to a lecture." And she goes, "So oh, really, what 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 were you doing that for?" And I said, "Well, to you know to to, to gen up on whatever." And she said, "You do realise that you know several hundred years ago they came up with this revolutionary new technology called the book." And so the scales fell from my eyes in a similar, <laughs> similar vein. So, um, 
But yeah, it just strikes me that, you know, both at a sort of social level, uh, not least in that, at an academic level and a, and a cultural level, but, you know, that, 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 that those glory days have probably passed. I, I'd like to think they'll return. One of the people we've had on the podcast over recent years, um, gentleman by the name of Sean Corrigan, who's, uh, if I say the phrase Austrian economist, I think you'll presumably know what I'm referring to, Yeah. Someone, oh, yeah, who's, yeah, yeah, yeah. someone who's from the Austrian school, uh, which is sort of instantly. sad. Money. Sort of sad it's money. good. I, I, it, yeah. it pleases me, yes. Sad money, small government, libertarian principles, all this kind of stuff. And I think it was Sean who first first alerted me to the concept of um, this this principle known as... So the, the first thing I'd say about a- a- academe, and I'm sort of glad I didn't stay in it because I enjoyed my, my little day in the sun, but I was quite glad to get back out into the real world again. Would be the the first thing I was aware of is this 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 sort of snitty phrase, which is, why are academics so so bitchy, because the stakes are so low, and the second one is is a, is a coinage of Sean Corrigan, or, or rather he alludes to the fact that what why why is academe academia such a hotbed of just awful, hard left nonsensical thought. And I think I think it's actually a gentleman called Gramsci who coined the phrase "the long march." It's all down to the long march through the institutions. The 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 yeah. left has completely taken over, you know, the scholastic world, the higher education world, and that. I think you could make a fair case now for pretty much most of the media as well, certainly in this country. Yes. Oh, oh, I mean, I, I wouldn't even be hesitant about saying that. Absolutely. I think even the, it's what Vox Day, I don't know if you've ever come across Vox Day. Um, he's a he's a kind of deep thinking. I've got, I've got, odd, I've got the first um, two albums, but the third, the difficult third album. <laughs> so anyway, Vox Day calls it Convergence. He wrote he wrote these 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 two books called SJWs Always Lie and SJWs Always Double Down. I mean, I think it's a bit of a mouthful, SJW, which stands for Social Justice Warrior, but it sort yeah. of captures it captures the modern left in all its lunacy. And what he he calls this process convergence, and it affects it it has already affected the universities and the newspapers. It's increasingly, well, I mean, I say increasingly, it already has happened to businesses as well. Big business certainly has already been converged, but I think even small businesses now find it difficult not to have to go through this process where they're taken over by commissars. I mean, I, since, since you're, you're partly an economics podcast, I believe that, that business has one function and one function only, to, which is to, to generate value for its shareholders by creating value for its customers yeah uh, i don't believe it has a, it has other social goals i think because then it becomes very confused and um yeah and, and yet the convergence of business by sjw values means that increasingly we are going to find that businesses are not doing what they're supposed to do which is to give the customer what they want to that to that point i'll just cite a, a tweet from ben and jerry's which i saw early today uh, saying oh, the murder, yes. of, the murder of George Floyd was the result of inhumane police brutality that is perpetuated by a culture of white supremacy. And then there's a big, a big black and white banner underneath saying we must dismantle white supremacy, which led me to respond: Does this mean? Does this just mean your vanilla isn't selling? 
I don't know if they call <laughs> their vanilla white things. supremacy or not, but it's like, for God's sake, I mean, you sell they, you're an ice cream brand, for Christ's sake. The, yeah, and, uh, of course, they would say that it, they're more than a brand. They're a way of life. You know, I mean, they're Ben and Jerry's. Ben, mm. ben and Jerry were hippies, weren't they? And we all know what we say about hippies. Never trust a hippie. And, uh, and I think they are the living embodiment of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, somebody else tweeted, actually. Somebody else noted that tweet. And they, they, they tweeted, can't I just have a scoop of cookie dough, please? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just hope. I really do. The thing is, people like us, us three, would hope, would we not, in, in our fond dreams, that this would be um, the, the, the businesses which which adopted this anti-business woke policy would be punished. That ultimately they would they would lose their their shareholder value. But I did. I, did either of you read that amazing essay um, written by, of all people, George Soros? On, on the new world of investment, on, on how he sought to invest in companies, not just for the, the bottom line, and because he looked at their accounts and thought they were, they were sound and, and promising and, and that it was well run, but that businesses now had a, a kind of social value, which had nothing to do with their business value. And that, and that this was, I think, I think, I wish I could tell you where, where I read this but but I, th I think he wrote it about 10 years ago mm. and it seems to me that that essay explained the extraordinary um rise of companies like like tesla mm. which seems to me to be at least partly about kind of yeah it makes me feel really good because because like electric they're the cars of the future and never mind mm. all that complicated nonsense about how there aren't enough charging points for these things, and that, and or the, that they, or, the fact, or the fact that the moment. electricity is generated by the burning of fossil fuels, for example. Yeah, inconvenient truths like that seem not to get in in, in the way. That that it's all about. It's a form of vir investment as a form of virtue signaling, oh. and we, we, I mean, we have hey, if you'd bet against that that view you'd have lost money i think i mean i mean a lot of the big plays of the last 10 years have been virtue signaling businesses haven't well, been it, one it, way or another. It, it does sound like the kind of crap that mark carney has been peddling for some time um the, the the investment industry has developed its own acronym for this which is called esg which is short for environmental and social and governance policies so in other words and there was a classic example of this yesterday when the university superannuation scheme announced it would no longer be investing in i think munitions and like sort of toxic <laughs> death toxic death merchants and i think i think belatedly tobacco um, along with, um, you know, the, the more unpleasant forms of the sort of energy producers. And, and then someone pointed out, I think, in, subsequently in the FT, that they don't actually invest in any of those things anyway. But it's like, I, I'm with you 110% that the purpose of a business is to make money. It's to make money for its, it's – it's to provide a service to customers and it's to make money for its shareholders. End of story. And everything else is just kind of nice to have, but it's not what the business was, was founded for. Isn't that um, why Ben and Jerry w would jump on a comment like they, they can see that there are so many people out there who are reacting to the events in America. It's a perfect opportunity to get their name out and attach themselves to 
this particular cause. And then next time you're in your, your Tesco or your, your Waitrose and you want to buy some ice cream, you'll be thinking of Ben and Jerry. So they're kind of doing that. And does that yeah. not explain why we've got this rolling wake, woke movement? Because everything is driven by advertising dollars. And this seem, these always seem to be the... I'm not saying that this isn't a just cause on its own, but these types of causes are ones that are very hard to argue against. I think it's, I, I think this is, this is moot. This is a, the, the, there are arguments um, on both sides. For example, I think Gillette, Gillette Razors lost quite a lot of customers as a result of that misguidedly woke advert where they, they said, to you know, men basically are a bun- bunch of Neanderthal sexist yeah. rapist thugs. I mean, they didn't actually put it quite so unsubtly, but that but that was the the message. And I think I think a few of their customers are thinking, well, hang on a second, why do they if they really hate us this much, if we're really that bad, why should we buy their razor blades? Mm. I and wonder how many Pelotons were sold. I don't know if you saw the Peloton, what, sorry? the Peloton advert. I don't know no. if you, you could perhaps be getting a bump in your sales very short term, but actually it it could well go the other way longer term. I'd love to talk to somebody. It wouldn't be great if we had somebody who really understood the, the, the marketing and advertising industry, who, who had chapter and verse on this. It's Roy, uh, well, example, on, on, the, sorry, on that, on that point, on that very point alone, there's Rory Sutherland, clearly, who is a stable mate of yours at the uh, the Spectator. But the the other thing yes. I was going to say is the one the one thing that that also uh, Christchurch has in common, apart from the fact that you and I were both graduates, but there's also a gentleman who, whose name may or may not be familiar to you, a gentleman by the name of David Ogilvy, who was the founder of Ogilvy. Oh, really? Page, and it's one of the most famous and well-regarded copyrights of the 20th century. Ah, well, if, if, if Ogilvy were here now, maybe he could tell us whether, for example, um, Nike, when they started, when they started backing Colin Kaepernick, the, um, the American football player who refused to um, stand up for the American flag, do you remember, for the national anthem, he, he, he took a knee. Yep. Now, again, th- that was a risky move because... I mean, I can imagine that Nike would have lost a lot of its its market share among sort of conservative households who believe in the American flag and and so on. So probably older older households and people in in Middle America, but the left and the right co- right coasts and probably the younger demographic would probably have have warmed to that and and probably would have bought more Nikes. Than before, so I think it's all about strategic virtue signaling, isn't it? I mean, I, I know from experiences in my own household, and I'm not going to—I'm not going to dare mention any more than that. But I can tell you that this whole Black Lives Matter thing has become a kind of uh, a statement of that people in their late teens and early twenties have really, really gone mad for this whole Black Lives Matter thing, mm. and they've really discovered just how racist the world is. I mean, there are households all over the world, like mine, where middle-class conservative dads are shaking their heads at what their, what their university-aged children are saying. Uh, it's a torrent of bullshit, and it's, and, it, and it's not very well thought through. 
But these are the talking points at the moment on um, Instagram and elsewhere. Mm. So if you've got this going across across the world, uh, among the key demographics, the, the key ice cream buying de- demographics mm. in these cases, I would suspect that Ben and Jerry's sales will probably not be harmed by mm. by this this virtue signaling. Well, the other thing, of course, is that what what Twitter is is in no way a reflection of the real world, much though. It, on in some occasions you might like it to be the case on the topic of advertising and, and savvy advertising I, I i i feel obligated to highlight that you know whereas you had the sort of the gauche woke crap happening there was also a tweet from fraser nelson uh, earlier uh today and he said yesterday the spectator said it was returning furlough money to the government and that we instead hope to sell more subscriptions the response was amazing we sold more subscriptions yesterday than any day in our history to those who have joined us thank you and the reason I mentioned it is, is firstly because you write for the Spectator, but you also write for Breitbart. So I was going to ask you, mm. if you like, what the difference is, well, what difference uh, there is between those two entities. But also, just to put in a plug for the Spectator, which is something I've very occasionally written for, because I think I happen to think it's the finest publication in the English language. Uh, yeah, the, the the Spectator is great. I Breitbart. I can't really talk about it just because mm. they have a that they have quite a kind of um, being in. A, I, I think it's a function of American organisations. I've never worked for Americans before, and they're very big on lawyers. Mm. They're very big on stuff like not talking out of turn at all. Yeah. So you know, I'm just thinking it's probably a better use of our of our time together if I just don't really take that bait. Sure. Sure. Not that I have any complaints about them. I just, you know, I, it's just safer for me to, sure. um, especially in these times. All I do know, I, I tell you what does fascinate me about Breitbart, um, is that from what I can gather, I mean, they're very, very, they're very, very secretive about their, their sale figures, but they seem to be doing really, really well. Um, and unlike a lot of their counterparts on the left, you think about BuzzFeed. Um, BuzzFeed has has cut its Australian political staff and its um, UK political staff. So it's obviously not doing that well, um, which made me very happy. By the way, I think a lot of the a lot of the leftist online publications have a a malice and vindictiveness that, I mean, certainly their equivalents on the right don't have. I mean, I don't think Breitbart really goes to destroy people personally. They don't dox them and stuff. Mm. Whereas I think that leftist, the leftist media is very, very personal and nasty. It's it, it's really about, you know, how can we destroy this person and sort the earth and, and ensure that their children never get a job again and, and so on. I don't I have- think the right has that malice. I heard a great line. Um, I, I, uh, the trouble is, he, it's almost like I wanted to sort of bookmark all the all the bomb mo and all the things I come across during a day, and then I realised some of them actually happened in real life and not just on social media. But uh, I had a great line the other day, and it was something on the lines of, you know, the left, the left won the culture wars, and now they're just driving around shooting the survivors. <laughs> that's that's it. I it's. <sighs> Sometimes I get moments where I think the tide is turning. Mm. 
that 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 and and that these these left wing voices are a nasty, embittered minority, who who punch above their weight simply by the fact that they they squeal more noisily than than ordinary people, but that actually um, ordinary decent people are, are are very sensible and they are conservative with a small C, if not a, if, if not a a big C. Uh, that they believe in free markets, they believe in personal responsibility, they believe in low taxes and so on. But then, uh, you know, I, I felt that during Brexit. I, I, I felt like there was a kind of, you know, the, the, the horny-handed sons of toil were on my side in wanting to, to give Britain a prosperous future, perhaps as the, as the I was going to say, the Hong Kong of Europe, but I think, I'm not sure I want to be the Hong Kong of Europe anymore. Well, Singapore but, of Europe, maybe, Singapore of Europe works. I was going to say Singapore is safer now. Yeah. That's what I that's what I hoped and that's what I was thinking when I made that film when I appeared in that film with Martin Durkin, Brexit oh, the movie. Brilliant. That, that's, that's what I was superb superb uh, superb film. Well, I, I I what I liked about that film was that it managed to make the case for Brexit without even mentioning immigration. Um and I'm not saying immigration wasn't a good thing to think about, you know, an important reason too, but but I really did think it was important to stress just how anti-democratic, anti-prosperity an organisation the European Union is. And it's so many, so much red tape was holding us back. Anyway, that's a, that's that's a long digression. Uh, when Brexit happened, I thought, yeah, these are my people. The country's going the right direction. But since this coronavirus pandemic nonsense has taken hold, I've been very disappointed in what's happened to my country and what I've seen of my people, of people who before I thought were, were sensible, sort of the earth, and, and I suddenly see them behaving like like um, you know, you know, like snitches in East Germany. Yeah, I was just uh, going to say, like know, East German people dobbing their neighbours into the Stasi. Yeah, and that has really surprised and disappointed me. And also, you know, I thought the British Bulldog was supposed to loathe any form of, of arbitrary authority and was supposed to love liberty more dearly than life itself. And yet here we are, we've had people saying, no, if you want the government, if, if the government can pay me to sp spend my life uh, on, on semi-permanent holiday, you know, with, with, with the government waggling, shaking the magic money tree to give me lots of free money. I'm really comfortable for that. I, I'm happy to stay under house arrest uh, for, for as long as you tell me. I found that quite extraordinary. Um, and, 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 and simultaneously, I, I found myself looking a bit like that, that, um, that meme you see, the distracted boyfriend, you know, looking over yeah, his yeah, yeah. at the different girlfriend, yeah. uh, looking at Sweden. And yeah. Sweden, I've never fancied before, at least not since the days of ABBA. And suddenly, Sweden, the the, the land of, of of jihadism and 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 soft socialism, um, suddenly seems a, a really attractive proposition. You know what happened? Have you seen the uh, f frankly extensive piece by J.B. Handley called "Lockdown Lunacy" yet? Oh no! Well, I, will it excite me and depress me simultaneously? Uh, yes, it will. Unfortunately, so it, it's it's. I God knows, it must be several thousand words, but it basically cites. I said, it, J.B. Handley, I'm, I think, must be American, but he's basically giving you chapter and verse about all of the Swedish-related type stuff uh, that's happened over the coronavirus, and you, you you go through this very extensive piece. I, I don't know how 
how long this business mold full of factoids and full of this stuff. Can you remember you any, would, Tim, to share with us? Because oh well, I've got it. I've got it in front of me. But um, uh, let's start with fact number one: the infection fatality rate for COVID nineteen is somewhere between 0.07 and 0.2% in line with seasonal flu. So, and that's just one. I think it goes to at least a dozen of these these facts, but that's just the first one. Now, if that's the case, then basically most of the world has, has been thrown under house arrest and governments have crashed the world economy, causing untold monetary, financial, economic, and human damage for nothing. This has all been the biggest yes. false alarm in history. Yes, I, I totally agree with everything you've said there. Um, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to survive this? I mean, financially, and is there going to be, is it worth even staying in this country? Well, is it, worth even, we go? Is, is it worth even staying on this planet would be my, my kind of response. It's like, come, come, come friendly meteorite of death, you know. But um, yes. the... Well, you, you, you mentioned modern monetary theory or, or the magic money tree because they're really one and the same. The thing that – and I've, I've mentioned this on numerous occasions uh, for people who are still willing to listen, which is probably an ever-dwindling band of, of people. But when we, we came into 2020, we, we, that is myself, Paul, my colleagues at my firm, um, we knew that something was wrong in the state of Denmark. Uh, but we were expecting the thing – that would pierce the bubble, the everything bubble, would be something from the financial sector itself, like, say, the bankruptcy of Deutsche Bank, for example. Yes. And, of course, nobody, yeah. lit um, literally nobody could have foreseen that actually what would, what would pierce the bubble would be a, you know, a novel coronavirus coming out of China. Let's not, talk, let's not dwell on the precise nature of the origin, but let's just say it came out of China one way or another. And my, argument, my argument would be um, and Paul, Paul, Paul is welcome to weigh in here. But, but Paul, if you're if you're not aware, um, James is a technical analyst, so he he tends to look at the prices above everything. So he doesn't go for well, I'm not putting words in Paul's mouth, but he won't go for big macro theses. He'll just say, look, the market's telling you this. Just accept what the market's telling you, which is a I think a fairly compelling argument. But basically, to, to go back to the the MMT point, uh, I, what I think has happened is that. The coronavirus pandemic has effectively acted as if as something akin to a time machine. All it's really done is it's just shuttled us, you know, five, ten years into the future in the space of a few months. So we were gonna get yes. here, we were gonna get here anyway, but all all the coronavirus has really done is just accelerate that process. The world was already you know, the, the, the global this is something we discussed when we, we when I was on your podcast a couple of years ago now. The the single biggest problem as I see in the financial system, in, in the world economy, is there's too much debt. There's too much government debt. There's probably too much corporate debt, which is of increasingly poor quality, credit quality. But the big problem is governments. If you accept, yes. if you accept the argument there's too much debt in the system, then there's only three ways out. One is that government itself engineers enough economic growth to keep the debt serviced. Coronavirus has just driven a coach and horses through that possibility. So forget that. The second option is that there's, there's some form of default or reset or jubilee or whatever you want to call it. But, any, but, but, a, but a, a, a debt instrument, a bond, is two things. It's an asset to the holder, but it's a liability to the issuer. So it would be the best thing 
for, for all governments, the best thing was simply, oh, yes, yeah, so a default on them. Brackets, that will destroy the global pension system overnight. So let's assume that's not going to happen. Well, what's in box number three? What's in box number three has been the box that every government throughout history has ultimately resorted to, which is inflation. You just inflate it away. And so the, the interesting facet here, without getting overly technical, is that the governments and the central banks couldn't engineer inflation last time around in the global financial crisis from 2007, eight onward. Probably, we had Russell Napier on uh, a little while ago, and his argument was essentially this, that they couldn't engineer inflation 12 years ago because the commercial banks weren't playing ball. So effectively, if you think in terms of just, just, just goosing the money supply, central banks were busily filling, filling the bath and commercial private banks, high street banks, were busy pulling the plug from the bath. So the, the net result was stasis. There wasn't inflation, despite the huge amounts of money printing. This time round, the rise of MMT, uh, fueled by COVID and all the rest, uh, firstly, to give Russell credit for this, we are in the midst of perhaps the biggest amount of financial repression ever in history. It's only going to get worse. And secondly, governments are in a strong position now to bully commercial banks to do what they're bloody told. In this kind of an environment, it will be that much easier for governments to, and central banks to create proper inflation. So, and I'll, I'll right. wrap up now because this is supposed to be you talking and not me. But the, the so my, I'll turn this into a question to find, you know, to, to, to round off. What do you think is the correct, the most accurate historical analog for what we're going through? And the, the choices could include any of the following or, or ones of your own suggestion, but those choices could include the 1930s, the Second World War, and drumroll, please, because this is my take, the 1970s. I'm not sure that there is uh, an exact or even halfway uh, decent historical analogue. You may well be right. You because well be right. I don't... Because I don't think that there's ever been such a, an outrageous um, abuse of power and, and uh, abnegation of responsibility as we've seen in the last few months by governments. I mean, I think this is the worst mistake that the world has ever made. Uh, you know, collectively, the governments of the world, there are a few notable exceptions, such as yeah. Belarus, <laughs> Tanzania, uh, Brazil, who would have imagined that these, or Sweden, of course, that yeah. these countries, these basket case countries could emerge as the, the heroes of the hour. One of the things I like about this, my, my friend Aidan Hartley makes this point, that, that we're all suddenly equal in this, that, that, that this, is a, this is a global experiment. It's a bit like the, the experiment that is in, that's conducted daily in America between the different states as they compete as to which ones have the sensible policy which is going to make you move there and which ones have the sort of stupid California style, mm. style policies which, which are going to make you run away a mile from them. Mm. And y you've, you've seen countries like, like Nigeria behaving more sensibly than the UK. And that's been, as a journalist, uh, if that's what I am, this has been fascinating to watch. I have to say, as, as, a, as a, a British citizen, a, a, a subject of the Crown, rather, it, it's made me enormously depressed because I'm just thinking, 
this is not the deal I signed up for when I was mm. born, when I won the lottery in life of being born British. I really didn't. Mm. I didn't go to, to Oxford for this shit to happen, you know, in my 50s. I, I didn't want to see my country go down the toilet because of the most trivial reasons. I mean, it's one, it's one thing if, 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 say, Hitler's Germany decides to set the world on fire and, uh, and, mm. and conquer, you know, continental Europe. That's a reason, that's a reason for making huge sacrifices, isn't it? And, and, and for risking your, your life. But, but to destroy your country's economy and, and take away all your freedoms on the basis of a, a made-up, a fake news pandemic, mm. that is really bothersome and it's not so much how they reacted 10 weeks ago that bothers me so the they, well, how they're doing it I, now they're doubling down how they're doing it now why aren't they ending the lockdown oh. then ending the lockdown now by the way can i just just rewind to a point you made you, you, you said no one can predict this coming uh, weirdly enough um you remember um when brexit uh, um I went to I went to two Brexit dinners in a row in 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 London at the end of February. Um, they were sort of celebration dinners because we thought we'd we'd finally won. And and one of them was the journalists who'd been agitating for Brexit. And I remember being on the table with Merrin Somerset Webb yeah. um, of of Money Week. And and also um, who who else was there? Um, Liam Halligan was there. Yeah. And I was saying to them, guys, this, I've been following this coronavirus story on Twitter. And I, I think it's much more serious than they're letting on. I, I'm really surprised that the global economy hasn't tanked yet. And I've been taking precautions. And what I did was I liquidated all my, um, uh, my very small share portfolio. We're talking you know, probably not much more, uh, more than uh, 20 grand. I liquidated all those and bought gold. I bought physical gold um, uh, uh, instead. Um, this was this was before before the crash. I, I didn't I didn't then go on to my um, my ISAs and things as well because that weekend I think I, I contracted what may have been coronavirus mm. and I was feeling so rotten I didn't have time to do any more tinkering. Mm. But. So I did. I, I was in the in, in, in a kind of semi-luxury position, and I did see it coming. I just didn't have the, quite the technical know-how to exploit it properly. Whereas I bet you guys would have would have would have made a killing. Well, the only thing I'd say, and it's not really meant to be a plug for anything, is that within the fund that we manage, we did have the. Yeah. I'd say the luck, if you like, to or, or just because it because this crystallised fears that we had anyway in relation to inflation yeah. and opportunities in the commodity sector. So we within our fund we rotated out of a few industrial cyclical stocks into fairly priced gold miners, and, and oh, obviously, okay. yeah. so so I mean obviously we feel very happy about that. But the the, the ridiculous thing is that then so you, in other words, if you want to see a V-shaped recovery, check out the you know the net asset value performance of our fund because it is like a v it's like a proper v shape so our fund is now actually now and this isn't a plug i, I promise it's just a, a, a it's, it's a signal of just how insane you know the markets have become if you want to see a v-shaped recovery then you know just to check out the check out our sort of unit price so the fund is now up year to date rather than down but in any normal environment you think well that's not really on and to to, to reinforce that fact i'll give you a quote from a, a u.s fund manager called howard marks because this is what I've used in commentaries recently. 
which I think you know, uh, absolutely attests to the, the the state of delusion that markets are now in. We're only, and this was in April, this was on April 20th, we're only down 15% from the all-time high in February. And it seems to me that the world is more than 15% screwed up. And I think that's a perfect, absolutely perfect way of expressing the, the dilemma. So, I mean, I, I'll, I'll it, let... It's really I'll, hard. I'll let I'll let I'll let Paul Paul chime in, you know, with, with his technical views. All I'd say is I think I think by and large most stock markets in the world now are delusional uh, and they're they're huffing glue. Given the given the pain that's going to that's going to come, I mean, uh, uh, the one last thing before I wrap up and shut up is, I've never before in my life been moved to tears by a chart by a you know sort of economics chart, but you may have seen this on Twitter because it got a lot of airplay a while back. It's a it's a it's a moving graph, so not a static one, but a moving graph, a bit like an animation of the US. I think it's US unemployment claims, and it goes back to like 1960 or something. And you see it tootling around whatever the average rate is, and then 2020 hits, and then it's just like a vertical straight line. And then, of course, because it's a mobile thing and it's acting historically, all of the all of the previously quote high unemployment filings just. Do they become like sort of just like sort of a almost a, a flat straight line at the bottom of a, a of a sort of a cross section of the Alps? Like Bitcoin at three dollars or something. Yeah, and it's just insane. <laughs> you think so? Okay, so now like forty million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits. You know, in case anyone misheard that, forty million people have just filed for unemployment claims. This is like. And 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 the stock markets are still close to all time highs. And some companies, including the likes of Netflix and and Facebook and Amazon, are at all time highs. You think, you know, stop the world. I want to get off. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I've got um, my eldest boy is in Hong Kong, and he's very. You want you want to get him out of there, Sean Fish. Well, it's it's funny you say that. It's. It, it, it's very different from where we are yeah. to over there. I don't think that, that that it's as simple as, you know, look, he's been there for 10 years. He's built up a, a, a position in the interior design business. Um, he's got lots of lots of clients. He oh, thinks sorry, I, I was just, I was just like, like doing it on a gap year or something like that. No, 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 no. He thinks he thinks he understands the he he thinks he thinks Asian rather than European now. And the perspective over there is, is, is and, very and different and from he's a number of right, He's absolutely right to be doing that as well, to be fair. Well, well absolutely. I, I think that for better or worse, this is going to be, from now on, it's going to be the Asian uh, century. Yeah. And it's interesting from an investment perspective, he thinks we are, I think, I mean, perhaps you, you are both much bigger picture than me, but... I think one tends to have a regional bias, but uh, d- depending on where you actually live, sure, you, th- sure. you, you know, you think European, you think American. He thinks he thinks Asian, which is why, by the way, he he helped me profit from Bitcoin because I think he could see that the big price movements were really coming from places like Korea and so on. It wasn't it wasn't really a Western thing. It was the it was Eastern kids playing playing the you know the crypto market. Anyway, um, he. Living in Hong Kong, he's he's kind of he's seen our future. He's uh, he's seen our future because he's experienced it already. So Hong Kong went through much earlier than us the, the stage where the shops started running out of bog paper, mm. and he said to me, "Look, yeah, this is what happens. The shops run out of bog paper, but then what happens is that they 
they replenish the, cell, the shelves and the shelves empty again and then they replenish them and, and, and eventually it dawns on the on the masses that actually bog paper ain't gonna run out so they may as well find something else to worry about mm. and he's been through the stage recently where having relaxed the lockdown hong kong then reintroduced the lockdown because of allegedly because some some expats returning from skiing holidays in northern Italy started spreading it again. I don't know whether that's true or it doesn't really matter. Um, and what he said to me was, is that he thinks there is going to be another situation in the West whereby there's a kind of a, a brief sort of resurgence of, of um, coronavirus. Nothing serious, frankly, mm. but that our jumpy governments are going to use this as an excuse to reimpose the lockdown. Mm. I mean... After what I've seen of government policy so far, I, I would not put any stupidity past Boris Johnson and mm. his bunch of idiots. I think mm. that they are that they are beyond incompetent. And and what's even more depressing than that is that you look to the opposition for a, a, a finer example and you realise very, very quickly that Keir Starmer would actually be even worse than this government. It, mm. it, that's how bad things are. Do you know the root of why people started buying toilet paper? It was. It's because you know. No, I, I don't. It was because there was a rumor that the same material that was used to to make face masks was the same material that is used in production of toilet paper, and that rumor is what led to everybody buying. Because everybody was saying, "I don't understand this. I just don't get it. Why is everybody buying toilet paper?" And of course, everyone was buying it because everyone else was buying it. And it was just one of those things, but that was that was the that was where it started. It was a rumor that, and it was completely false as well. But in it, so initially there were panic panic purchases of toilet paper so that people couldn't get coronavirus anally. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. Let's, I, it, let's it, not think about that. It, <laughs> it's too late. Actually, the the genie's out of the bottle. This is quite interesting. There's a sort of a theme emerging here. You probably haven't seen it because uh, you need to be slightly mad to see it. But but um, I was thinking about making a connection between um, crypto trading and and what's what's happening now. That my my boy Jim didn't didn't trade um, trade cryptos like they were a kind of rational thing. He would instead go with the rumours and, and and hang around in chat rooms. It, it, it wasn't like a conventional investment, or maybe it was like a conventional investment. I mean, maybe that's where investment has gone. It's these kind of kids just pissing about. But I I, I really rather feel that that, that that same rule applies to government policy towards coronavirus. It's all, uh, and, and, what, and, what, and what the public reaction is. It, it seems like, like, Irrationalism has taken hold of the world, and if you try and look at things sensibly, you're you're, you're going to lose. There is, you need there to, is, you need to go with the madness. There is there is a very famous political cartoon which you may have seen, and it shows someone. I don't know if he's wearing a crown or not, but it's someone who's clearly supposed to be a politician leader type, and he and he's chasing a mob, and he says, "I must follow them. I am their leader." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, sh- short version. I think we are totally fucked. I, I just, I, I, I despair about what's happening 
in the world. And the, the only thing, the only small crumb of consolation I can snatch is that maybe one can profit by this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I mean, like like you, my, my kind of my tiny investment fund is up on the year rather than down. You know, I I short sold um, Carnival Cruises, for example, uh, made a bet on on silver made a bet on when oil jumped from what was it twenty dollars to minus 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 forty dollars yeah well well yes yes so so i mean these uncertain times are very good for for those of us who are kind of can somehow find a way through the the forest and 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 spot opportunities we're not we're not in the business of of tipping specific things necessarily that's that's not so really our, our bag but having said that um both gold and related, both gold and related things, and in particular silver and related things. I have never, I mean, in the twenty years that we've been investing into precious metals and the monetary metals specifically, gold and silver, I have never felt more positive about them as I do today. Um, and the interesting thing yes. about that, the interesting thing about that journey is that all the way through, the rationale for holding them has sort of changed over time. It hasn't been the same reason throughout. But the the reason now is that, uh, not least, it, again it, we come back to the debt the debt predicament. That if if you think that governments and central banks are going to try and inflate their way out of the mess that they've created for all of us and for themselves, then you know every so often this happens maybe once every five years, every ten years. You know, the markets just give you a no-brainer of a, of a of an idea of a trade, and you think, well, there's limited downside. You know, for any investment, the downside's 100% effectively. But I don't think the same way about the potential upside. I think the upside could be hundreds and hundreds of percent. And I, I don't exaggerate. I mean, Paul, what's your take on uh, that? Do you the really? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. Paul, do you have a, a view on the technicals for for gold, or, or in this case, particularly silver? Well, gold definitely looks very close to a massive breakout and it, it, it that would imply much further upside silver not so much as as yet but still it's performing extremely well if we think back to the way that palladium and all the catalytic converter thefts that had been mm. going on and what was caused what was causing that if you if you saw a chart of palladium and you and very often markets will rotate like this. If palladium is a is an example of what gold's about to do, then get ready for three thousand dollars plus. And I, I and for anybody who thinks that that's not possible, you know, just just remember that gold is actually a real thing, whereas Bitcoin isn't. And I'm not saying that that's not an argument for holding Bitcoin, but if if you think about the questions that that uh, you know James's son is thinking about that we would never be thinking about as kids what is money i mean yeah. nobody asked that question when we were young but today they're saying well what's money well we're saying well money's this 10 pound note well is it well what is money well it's just this bit of paper well okay well then this ledger's a bit of money too well no it's not well yes it is so you have this sort of argument about what exactly we are dealing with here and what we're dealing with is is the fact that we have an imagination and that imagination allows us to accept whatever we're told is money. So in the same way that you can buy tokens and 
you know, on, on these games online and what have you, you can buy any sort of token that, that can go up in a, a huge amount of money. But whilst we're in this position where we're, we're seeing the direct result of the, the governments trying to prop up the economy, that we know that they're going to have to do more and more of this. They're pumping more and more money into the system. And so it just seems logical, and markets aren't always logical, let's face it, but it does seem logical that there could be more upside. So, you know, I'm I'm always a bit cautious when everybody starts to get too excited about Mm. a particular product. But I don't think, I think gold's moved, but it's not moved... It's not moved in a way that Bitcoin's moved. So therefore, I think there's, there, no. could, there could well be much more upside. So I'll give you, I'll give you just I, one stat that made, it made a huge impression on me. And it's from, well, actually, it may not be from, but it, it, if it isn't from it, it ought to be from it. There's a, there's a piece, James, that you may or may not be familiar with, but it's, a, it's an absolute beast of a, a bit of research called In Gold We Trust, which is written by some guys in Austria called Incrementum. And it's free. You can download the PDF from their website. It's called In Gold We Trust, and this is the 2020 edition. This run, this is a basically a sort of a, a recommendation, uh, impl- sort of implicitly on, on investing in gold. It runs to 356 pages. But this, it may not be the source of, of this, but it, 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 as I say, it ought to be if it isn't. And the, the stat is that the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, in two months – has printed more money than it did in, uh, I think it's, it's done more than half of what it did during six years since the global financial crisis. Now that is inflation being, that that is the sort of the, the seed corn of inflation. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm glad you, you said all this because I have to confess, I've been a gold bug for quite a long time. You're amongst, you're amongst like a lot friends of, here, James. This is a safe well, space for gold bugs. Well, I, I try not me, to be biased, to be you, fair. You, <laughs> have you not been through the experience I've been through, which is you keep waiting, waiting for years for gold to, to break out. I mean, and it's been so disappointing. And and even even now, you know, even now that gold, yeah, it's, it's, it's done... It's done reasonably well, but it hasn't it hasn't shot to the moon in the way that Bitcoin did. And I had I had resigned myself to the view that, that gold is a bit like what my friend Will Nutting calls it, your goalkeeper. That that you know it's your kind of solid defence, and you have it. You have maybe ten percent of your portfolio in gold. And it's just a kind of hedge against all the other hedge against inflation and, well, and some, so on. Well, some, some, some sorry, never... sorry to interrupt, but some would argue that gold was always intended to be a stay rich rather than a get rich investment. Right. Yes. Well, that's that's a good way of, of putting it. And if you're like me, if you if if you like fun in the markets, if you don't really. Uh, judge an investment to success unless you've got a 10 bar. Um, so I, I set the bar quite high there. The, the, the gold looks really, I mean, what are you going to get? You might get a sort of, if you bought now, you might get a, you know, a, a double a 10%. Or a, whatever, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so you're saying that, well, I, I mean, you're not making predictions, but but silver, for example, I'm, I'm intrigued. It, it, what's it about now? 18, is it, or something? I don't know, but all I'm saying is that How? The, the gold to silver ratio 
has never been more in favour of owning silver than it is at the moment. No, I, I've, I've, I've heard this. I've, I've, I've heard this from Dominic Frisbee among others, and he's been saying this for some time. And, and still, it's not, it's not, not done anything special. But do you, do you, so you reckon that what silver could double? Could it treble? I think it easily. I think it, I think it easily could, and the the reason why is. I mean, again, I'll defer to Paul for the t- for the technical analysis. But the reason, from a fundamental perspective, would be firstly, you know, we've always we've always um, as a business strongly distinguished between the monetary metals, gold and silver, which have always been money in the in hist- in historic past, and all the other precious metals, because the 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 other precious metals have industrial uses there, so they're very cyclical. Where yeah. silver is interesting is that it's a monetary metal, but it also has quite a lot of industrial uses in a way, in more so than gold. And also the fact that it has antibacterial qualities. I mean, if any, if ever there were time to reintroduce, you know, sound money and silver money as a coinage, now's that time. But that's a separate point. So, it, so you've got a yeah. potential double whammy. Silver could benefit both from the. I mean, because it's so cheap relative to gold, it, it's like the poor man's gold anyway. Because you're talking about eighteen dollars opposed yeah, to you know sixteen hundred dollars or whatever it is, but also because it has industrial uses, as and when the economy does recover, if it does ever manage to recover from this, then you've got a potential two, two you know you've got two two strings to the bow rather than just one. If you go back to 2011 and look at the the high in silver, which is where why this ratio is showing the way it is, it was around fifty dollars. So why it's not you know at thir- at least at thirty dollars relative to where gold is i don't know it's it, it should be much much higher so very often um there there is a in the technical world and in the markets world there there is a re there will be a reason for it so you know something underperforms and and we'll just find out later on why but there, well, there, but, but perhaps it's because JP Morgan's engaged in an in illegal price suppression activity. Well, uh, okay. E.g. E- okay, well, I, I wouldn't I, – I, I couldn't comment. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> but but what, what I would say is that if, you, if you're asking about cans, I mean, can it? Yeah, absolutely. Of course it can go. It could go to $100. I mean, if, if Bitcoin's right. anything to go by, it should be, you know, at $500 or $1,000. I, mean, I, uh, I think that's one yeah. of the reasons why the commodities market is so interesting. And also it's why everybody should have some exposure to it, because the commodities market is capable of giving you the kind of ridiculous returns. And obviously, you know, the attendant risks. So let's, let's, let's be, be issued the usual caveat in both directions. But it's capable of giving you the most extraordinary returns in a way that most conventional markets like stocks and bonds simply aren't capable. So, you know, if you're if you happen to be in a, the right commodity at the right time, you, know, you, you can get one of your 10 baggers. The thing yeah, is, equities are doing exactly. the same, though. There, there is, there is, you know, I've got to give the other side of it. Equities and certain equities have have just performed so unbelievably well that it that it does it does feel like okay, you've really got to pick your product here. And mm. that I mean, Apple looks like like you were saying earlier, it looks like it's going to break into a new high. And Amazon and and uh, Netflix have already done that. It looks like Tesla's going to break over a hundred thousand. I mean, geez, what, what? What? So if if that's going to happen, then silver and gold, you know, real stuff we're talking about mm-hmm. here. Why? Why? Why wouldn't it? And why shouldn't it? Even if it's just a catch-up play. That's good to hear. I tell you what. Just changing the subject slightly. I tell you what's what's really disappointed me uh, during this 
this this crisis. I've I've really turned against big pharma. I mean, you know, as as an investment play, it wouldn't stop me putting money into it if I thought it was going to make me some money. But I just think morally they are everything that people say about big pharma that I thought was conspiracy theory turns out to be conspiracy fact, starting with, for example, this this enormous pressure on the media, on politicians to disavow hydroxychloroquine mm. as a a as, as a treatment for for, for COVID-19. Uh, because I see this, this story, you know, you, you, when you you hear the health minister, what's her name, um, uh, Nadine Doris, you know, talking about, you know, we can't get back to normal till we have a vaccine. You know, wait, what? Well, we we, we may never have a vaccine. Of, yeah. We may never have it. So what you're saying is that is that weirdness is the new normal and we've just got to get used to it. That's that's wrong. And equally, this this notion that 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 things are going to be solved by a, a vaccine, which is only going to benefit big pharma. I think it's outrageous that, that our governments have been uh, have been sold this line and they bought it. Well, it's funny because I'm going to circle right back now to where we began uh, in terms of, say, you know, the the world of universities and academia, do you yes. do you would would you endorse the idea that the next iteration of government that we have and cabinet government has to include more people with a a science background and fewer people with an Oxford PPE background? No, I don't buy into that because I think it's actually ultimately about look who, who's who's the most. Um, outspoken and informed and feisty critic of the climate change nonsense well it's not a science graduate it's me you know me who read i who read english um because what i what i developed when i did english and i'm sure it was the same with you i developed critical thinking skills and actually i think that this i think that this crisis has tested to destruction the notion that people who did STEM subjects have the answer. Mm. We've just seen a government enthralled to the SAGE committee mm. and a fat lot of good it, good it's done us. They've, mm. They took people like Neil Ferguson seriously because he's mm. the sciencey scientist with his science degree. Well, mm. well, I'm sorry, but despite years of, of brainwashing by the BBC, which has tried to kind of relate, raise scientists to the level of priests, which effectively they've, they've become, I don't trust the buggers. I don't mm. think they... You know, they're just as prone to stupidity and corruption as the rest of us. Isn't mm. it just a case of who you listen to? I mean, it, all knowledge or all advice or whatever you might call it will always sum to zero. So you can find someone on the other side in the science community who would say completely the opposite. So mm. it's just a question of who government or whoever else decides to listen to. Totally. Look at, look at Dr. John Lee, for example, who's been, been having a, a fantastic war Um saying from the outset in the spectator and elsewhere that this is a this is no worse than seasonal flu we certainly shouldn't be knocking down the economy look at dolores cahill professor of um, immunology at the university college dublin there are some really good people uh who are very skeptical about about our response to to the coronavirus and we just didn't listen to them right to try to try and take a kind of in the in the perhaps vain doomed hope of trying to find a positive here. Uh, I think we can probably, between the three of us, agree that many entities have had a terrible war, to use your words, James. Who or what do you think has had a good war? 
who's had a good good war i think we're talking about okay uh the supermarkets yes i think yes, I've a fantastic war. yeah i think that that what we've seen is that something that that we three all know instinctively which is that free markets are always better at allocating resources yeah. than governments you look at you look for example of how public health in england has responded abysmally to this to this crisis you know with the de- delays in ppe equipment the, the the incompetence to do with the testing and so on if we'd thrown it open to private labs to private private industry it would have been fine they'd have performed as well as the supermarkets so the, the supermarkets but in a way the, the fact that the supermarkets has, have performed so well is a bad thing because what they've done is they they've enabled the lockdown to be be more tolerable mm. in the same way that we ought to we ought to point out that God has been very very poor in this in this pandemic because what he's done if he's in charge of weather is given us this incredibly benign sunshine which has mm. gulled people to thinking that they're actually enjoying a, a free holiday. Mm. Uh, but no, but seriously, supermarkets have been really good. Uh, individuals have been good. You know, people like like um, Peter Hitchens and so on. I'd say the, the 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 institution that has performed worse, worst, even worse than governments, has been the mainstream media. Yeah, I think it has signally failed to do its job in every respect. It's been a negative. Um, it, what what it's done is it's ramped up the hysteria it has failed to investigate counter narratives you know i mean for any halfway decent reporter let alone an investigative reporter there is so much low-hanging fruit in this in this story about about the involvement of china the corrupt relationship with the who the corrupt the corruption of of anthony fauci and bill gates the the cozy relationships between all these things the dubiousness of the science on which we were forced to lock down there have been so many good stories none of which have been reported outside places like my friend toby young's covid skeptic site and that's mm. you know in a few spots like the spectator but generally the media the mainstream media has been dismal and it has been deservedly spanked for it. I mean, I think that mm. this is the ma- the mainstream media's last hurrah. All those begging adverts you saw in the newspaper saying, "We are journalists, and we have we are really important, and therefore we think that you should buy our newspapers, and the government should give us more money." You know, fuck off! You <laughs> you, you you don't deserve this. You have failed. You don't deserve the name journalists anymore. Yeah. You're just basically government propaganda stooges nothing more but not even that it's more like a ref- uh, endlessly reflexive critique of government which in some cases deserved but in some cases is just completely inappropriate so have you completely changed your view on boris johnson then tim or you just yes. dis- yeah right okay no the thing was look look boris as you know is an old old university pal of mine um i'm i'm sort of fo- it's a bit like my relationship with Michael Gove. I uh, I love Michael, and I think I will probably always love Michael because he's my friend from the past. And I, you know, for all his faults, politically, he is my friend. Uh, I, on a personal level, I, 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 I Boris, you know, nice company. I think he's a he's a sort of good sort. But as a politician, he's been absolutely totally bloody hopeless 
I mean, well, to be fair, Brexit, Brexit worked. Um, Brexit worked. Well, that's the thing. I think people who say say to me things like, and I get this a lot, I, below the below the the line on on Breitbart, you know, in the comments from kind of the rabid readers there, they say things like, "Yeah, but 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 five months ago, you were saying that Boris was the best thing, and he was our he was our golden hope, and he was going to do this, and he's going to." I say. Well, I don't, I don't reply to these people normally, but what I would say if I could be bothered would be, yeah, do you not remember what things were like five or six months ago? The whole country, the, the whole system of government had been sabotaged by the, the leftist deep state, you know, the Remainer deep state. The, the judiciary had been nobbled, the Supreme Court, Tony Blair's creation, the civil service. The media, the entirety of the media, pretty much. I mean, okay, there was the odd exception, like the Telegraph, but but the BBC and so on. The uh, what else? The big corporations, the city. They were all trying to steer the country away from from Brexit. They were trying to sabotage Brexit. Parliament was was completely. I mean, I mean, it was just jammed up, wasn't it? There was nothing. It could not advance. Boris at the time was our only way out of that. It wasn't that he was kind of the dream candidate that everyone would have would have chosen regardless. He was our man for that particular moment. And I suppose, you know, if one had to go through it all over again, one would still say that Boris was the man for that moment. He's, but he and his cabinet have been hopelessly inadequate to the task of dealing with this crisis. Mm. You see, I, I'm slightly—I guess, ironically, I'm slightly more forgiving of his position in not wanting to do the wrong thing at the beginning of a crisis. Yeah, but no, but I mean, this is a given. I—I'm I, not disputing that. I, I don't think anyone reasonable would. But we're talking of that. That was a long time ago. That yeah. was ten weeks ago. We're yeah. talking about now. We're talking about you know, you know better than almost anybody in the country. What a world of economic pain awaits us. Just how badly that this government has, has, has messed up in its, in its policy, or at least how much damage the, lockdown, the ongoing lockdown policy will, will cause. And, OK, so 10 weeks ago, it, you can understand why the government made the, the panic decision that they did. The public mood was changing. The public were, were yearning for, for more direction from the government that was going to save their lives. People were, people were going, for, going for safety, and, and that's fine. But now there is such an abundance, a superabundance of evidence to show that, well, as that, as that article you mentioned uh, earlier says, that this virus is no worse than seasonal flu. We've never locked down economies before for seasonal flu. This is nowhere near as bad as Spanish flu. And yet, despite all this evidence, our, our, our government are still coming up with this, this rubbish about how we need to have a two-metre distancing. We can't open restaurants yet. We can't open pubs. We've got to have this quarantine. This quarantine, which is devised by Dominic Cummings, who I think a lot of us thought was our man inside the Boris administration, the one who would keep him honest, the one who would who would get rid of of government incompetence and and probably uh, sack one in one in in ten civil service hangers on and so on. And instead, we've got this Dominic Cummings, who who, who we know was pushing for the lockdown and and is now pushing for the quarantine, which is going to cause 
even more economic damage, quite unnecessarily. That's what I find unforgivable. It's the government's refusal to admit they've made a mistake and to correct it. That's the problem. I guess there's, I guess there's still, I guess there's still time, but I suppose there is this, like Tim said, you've got this situation where it's a sunken cost, isn't it? They've invested so much in this that it's so hard. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. But I'm amazed that their consciences can allow them to do this because they must know. I can't believe that somebody is, well, Gove, for example, I mean, Gove apparently, um, my podcast is his favorite podcast. He listens to it when he's, when he goes jogging. Well, (laughs) he, he can, he can't listen to that and not be aware of what's going on. Um, so I'm just thinking, this is, it's like you read in the newspapers about the latest regulations. that I read in the paper today, for example, that Pretty Patel, who, who, do you remember? It wasn't so long ago when we thought she was our next Margaret Thatcher. Pretty Patel had said that it would, um, that in honour honour of all the people who died of the coronavirus, we would have to maintain the quarantine. Otherwise, we'd be, we would be betraying the memory of the coronavirus victims, which, which, which again, is a, is a kind of an emotive invocation of what you would call the, the sunk costs fallacy. Yeah. We're in this far, so let's carry on pretending that, that coronavirus is a problem and we've got to deal with it. I think well, it's, 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 um, it's funny. Sorry to interrupt, James. The one that the, the line that springs to mind, and this is our common heritage uh, popping up, is the line I use is the one from Macbeth, which is we're, we're in blood so steep that to go back would be as tedious as to go. Uh. Yeah, that, that is exactly it. I, 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 do you know, I've tried to remember that quote, but it's quite useful for that kind of thing. And it, it's quite complicated. The syntax is quite. And there's quite another and there's another one. There's another one that, that I, I keep coming back to, which is I, mean, I suppose we should probably just stop indulging our sort of, you know, Oxford English lit wank fancy. But anyway, no, let's cares? not. Let's who not. cares? And it's the, it's the one about it's the one about two spent swimmers that cling together and choke their art. Which is a fab. And Macbeth is my favourite play. I have to say, some of the poetry in it is just sublime. Mm. Yes, it, what what a shame that one can't go and see any of this stuff performed in a normal fashion at the RSC anymore. Well, not only uh, that, but the, so... the the one I make a globe may may never actually open again, which would be really sad. Not that I've ever been there, mind you. No, no not the. No, really... Neither. I, I the <laughs> thought of being a groundling and standing up all the way through. Right, but okay. I think a lot of you know a lot of their productions are, are kind of wanky. Shall we? <laughs> shall we? On, on, on slightly less depressingly, go to go to my my top TV recommendations. Absolutely. Of, of, is that what you want? Yeah, let's go for the media. Okay. Picture, to finish on a lighter note. Okay. So I have to watch a lot of TV, and I really don't mind at all. 21st, 21st century problems. Mm. Because we are living through undoubtedly the golden age of television. And the reason is that, that you remember when we were all sort of, when, when we were all growing up, that, okay, we'd get the odd American import, but that was about it. Mainly it was homegrown television and, and American imports. But now you've got Israel. Well, we had the flashing blade. Really, we had the flashing blade and Robinson Crusoe. We did. <laughs> we, we, we did have, and we also had, we also had Bell and Sebastian. Singing, ring, singing, I'm going tree. to have to kill your dogs. <laughs> we had what? Sorry, singing, singing ring, tree. Yeah, where did that come from? That came. That was. Scandinavian, I mean, that came from somewhere it? in Eastern Europe. Mm. Probably Chernobyl. Anyway. But now we've got all these countries like France and, and Germany. You know, okay, so France, you've got um, Spiral. 
uh, a few other good things. So there's a, a new one called the Bureau, is it? Uh, you've got um, obviously the Scandi Noir dramas coming out of Scandinavia. You've got Babylon Berlin, one of the best things in recent years coming out of Germany. Fauda out of Israel, um, plus the precursor to Homeland, the the Israeli version, which was getting got Americanized. Um, but my top tip at the moment, I mean, Fauda, I think is brilliant. Absolutely. But my top tip at the moment, have you seen Caliphat, which is a Swedish drama? No. It's on Netflix at the moment. Incredibly grimily realistic. It's like, um, it's set partly in Raqqa under ISIS and partly it's set in, in Sweden. And it's a very, very convincing portrait of what it's like to be a a a Muslim in in modern Sweden, and b to be a Muslim living in living in in Raqqa, and you you understand everything so much better. So I'll just give you one example. There's this this uh, this family, you know, dad and and mum have both fled some ghastly war zone. I'm not I can't remember where they are, whether they're Kurds or whether they're Syrians or what, but they've they've been given asylum in 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 Syria and they're now living in this typical kind of Swedish, sorry, don't say Syria, they're now living in this Swedish apartment block and they're trying to build new lives. And they've got these two daughters and one of the daughters is is flirting with 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 jihadism because she's been recruited by, by yeah, I, mean, I mean, ISIS does have these very silver-tongued recruiters who the girls kind of partly fancy sexually, but, you know, there's a thing going on and, and, and this is exploited by this teenage anger and confusion and kind of uh, burgeoning desire is exploited by these guys and that's how they get, get them to go out to, to Raqqa, saying that they're going to go to an Islamic paradise where everything is free and according to the will of Allah and, and, and it's going to be, you've got this great, this great house where you're all be together, all, all, all living the religious life, but it's going to be lovely and abundance of stuff. Anyway, it, it's it's very well researched and very very gripping. You know, it, it's it's difficult to watch because there aren't many laughs. I mean, at least in Fowler, you had a bit of you know hot chicks in um, with machine guns and khaki to distract you, and, and the lads having drinks and fags. But there's not there's not really much much respite from the general misery but it's it's really gripping and really really good so caliphat is my recommendation well, i'll very briefly give you mine this is a film called the wolf's call um and it's a french film so it's full of frogs unfortunately but you kind of everything and you know it's you know you need needs must during lockdown but it's 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 the wolf's call or um what would that be in uh, in in the original french uh, Le Chandelou. Le Chandelou is the um, Le is the original title, and uh, a guy called Francois Civil plays the main, main character, who is a character called Chanterade, which sounds a bit like some kind of a carbonated uh, soft drink. And he's it, basically it's a submarine. It's a submarine film, uh, submarine war film set in the present day or perhaps the near future. And you can't beat a good submarine film, I find. And, oh, look, uh, Das Boots. Das Boots yeah. is absolutely, absolutely awesome. And this one, so this guy, Francois Seville, plays Chanterade, uh, and th- this character is basically an expert in uh, acoustic warfare. So he's called, he's called at various stages Golden Ears. 
because his you know the quality of his hearing is so good he can detect between you know this ship and that ship and this rudder and that yes. rudder and it's all it's all marvelous um it's 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 kind of uh, you know uh, just pure escapism um uh, it's probably a sign that I'm just going slowly mad during lockdown, but it was the kind of escapist stuff that I, I warmed to, and it's it's quite quite suspenseful, and it did did the job for me. So as an alternative to sort of playing War Thunder and shooting the Bosch out of the sky on a daily basis, uh, <laughs> then the Wolf's Call is is the next best thing. But it leads me to wonder whether actually anyone's done a, a, a video game adaptation of Das Boot because I'd certainly be up for that. But yeah, the Wolf's Call, which is quite a Quite a where, where is it? Where did you see? Where did you see it? I, I it was I. It would either have been on. Well, I think I think we recorded it on Sky. Um, I don't think it was Netflix. I think it was a one on. Um, it would either have been on one of the four channels, but I think it was probably uh, probably a Sky a Sky a Sky premiere. Okay, fine. Yeah, great. Finish. Well, actually, this week I I haven't got one because I've just been so completely snowed under so i haven't had time to watch anything which has been a real shame so that's I'm, not I, acceptable that's I, not I know but i will will try and redeem myself by saying that there, there's a couple of couple of things that have come on the radar that uh, that i've heard are really good and one is the normal people um on the bbc iplayer so a few people have been pinging me about that saying this is really good and the other one is the jeffrey epstein um, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I've, I've been watching that. Yeah. So that looks that looks good. I haven't I haven't actually watched it. There, there was a recommendation that somebody asked me to to, uh, to have a look at on Twitter, and it was for a film. I've just remembered I watched it. It was the other night, and I try to forget it. It was um it was called in time. Good. Well, yeah, exactly. It's it's called In Time, and it's um, Justin Timberlake. And the the premise of the film is that I thought that was all right. I quite liked it. No, nah, no, nah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good enough for me. I mean, I like the idea, but it's like time is money. Okay, we get it. Everybody's twenty five. Yeah, I yeah. I did. I didn't really like it. I thought it wasn't. I was sort of watching it and then just sort of not watching it at the same time, just reading something else at the same time, because it was fairly. I don't know. It, it was like anti capitalism, anti sort of. It, well, the message was you've got to make the best of the time that you've got and they're the haves and the have-nots so you get that really early on yeah. and and any sort of film in that kind of style where you've got yeah this is a great initial premise it's never going to be that that can't carry the whole film a well, good, that's what, it's what they call a high concept film isn't it yeah it will never carry it will always yeah. be about something else and it because that can't it's a nice idea but it's not a film it's a it's just a concept within the film so what is the actual film about it's about revenge and his revenge and how he got it and yeah it was good it was good but it wasn't like oh my god you've got to see this and so for for the amount of money that they they spent on it i think i thought well it's a bit it wasn't as good as it could have been and i'd rather have watched yeah. something else but it's you know it's worth what what was your what was your opinion tim do you liked it i quite like quite liked it i just thought it was a nice escape is fun but uh on the other hand yeah justin timberlake yeah meh yeah, I, I don't mind him. I thought he's good in the social network. I'd no, rather agreed, agreed. And that's that's why that's when you're really busy. It's like I, if I'm going to watch something, I want it to be really good, and that that's why the bar's there. So so we've definitely got a great one from James. So thank you for the, for your recommendation, and and, and yeah. obviously you as well, Tim. Yeah. So I look forward to to watching those. I make definitely make time for them. So I think I think we've run we've run our course, James. Excellent. We are spent. Well. We have. We're exhausting. 
Absolute pleasure, James. Thank you so much. It's just been brilliant. It's gone so, it's gone so fast. If people, if people want to get in touch or if they want to follow you, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Oh, so I'm on Twitter. And please get them to listen to my Delipod, um, which I think is a really good podcast. And support me on Patreon. Um, it's a kind of community of of like-minded people. I think you'll be really happy there. If you, if you listen to, you know, we're all sort of... Uh, libertarian stroke classical liberals we believe in limited government we uh we worry about limited about government what's that granddad yeah quite i know yeah <laughs> james just uh, just, it, just before yeah. you go i, I yeah. i've got i've got to ask are you penning another book at all is any anything creative no, I'm, no i'm not i'm not and i should be okay it's appalling I, and and i'm glad that you mentioned that because it will sting me into action i should do it's bad <laughs> i'm too busy producing material for the, the i'll tell you what just just briefly having a patreon has been really exciting for me because i've always felt like an entrepreneur monkey i've always wanted to have my own business i always think that really the thing that matters in the world is setting up your own business because you're, so what's, what's that? you're you want to be a, you want to be an entrepreneur minky so no, other, no, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm being for the monkey. I'm, I'm always oh, sorry. The cheap yeah. gag, and it always, it always, ah. it always dies a death, which makes it that much yes, funnier. Yes, I want to be. Adventures. I want to be a kind of whale, or, or, or yes, uh, something out of the uh, Inspector Clouseau. Yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. No, I wanted. I wanted to have my own business because I think that, you know, people who create something that people want is they're fulfilling a, a, a holy duty, actually. A bit like, you know, having or as important in its way as having having a family, having children, um, because when obviously one wants to get more prosperous as time goes on. And um, what I found is that having a patron is like it's like having your own business. You know, you, you, you're, it's like running a cafe. And you've got your customers and you you want your customers to be happy. And you also want to do things that are going to lure more customers in. What can I do? What special deals can I offer? What do they like? What don't they like? It, it doesn't have a corrupting effect. I mean, I don't think I'm suddenly going to start embracing, say, left-wing politics in order to, um, in order to reach out to a wider audience. But it, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's a distraction because actually you're finally seeing, you know, there's the direct relationship between you and your audience and your income stream has never been been closer. Whereas with the book, you know, it's a kind of long process and you've got publishers in between and you've got agents and you've got it's it's much more immediate having having a Patreon. I can recommend you, uh, it. Do you like Jeff Norcott? Because I notice he's just got moved to Patreon. Oh. I like Jeff very much. I, uh, I, I think he's uh, uh, the the thing is. Look, if I'm honest, one of the best things I saw recently was uh, a clip on an old interview between um, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky and Jeff Andrew Norgood. Marr. Have you seen this? <laughs> no, Andrew Marr. No, I haven't. I, seen I'm it. not a fan of. I'm not a fan of Chomsky, but 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 I realised that actually he's much cleverer and on point than I thought he was. And so he's being interviewed by Andrew Marr and, 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 and Chomsky, Chomsky is explaining that, that really the media is just, is just um, it does the work of the establishment. And, and 
Andrew Marr gets on his high horse about this and, and says, but, I, but you know, I, I know several colleagues who, who I think would balk at that, that suggestion, that they're, they, they go into, into journalism to speak truth to power and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And um, Chomsky replies patiently, well, I'm sure you may think that way, Andrew, but that's because that's how you've been taught to think through the years. And, you know, you're not even self-censoring. You're not even aware that you're, you're mm. doing that. But he said, you wouldn't be sitting here with that job today if you were, um, you know, the, the kind of seeker after truth and the rebel that you claim to be. And I feel that slightly about, about Jeff Norcott. I think he's very funny. I've seen his show. But at the same time, he has become his his shtick is to be the um, the conservative that that you know is, is is a bit edgy, but not so edgy that he's not going to get on the BBC occasionally. Yeah. Um, and I think that really our job is to move away from all that and just kind of completely reject this corrupt system. So that's that's increasingly where I'm going. I, I just have no truck with the mainstream media anymore. I think it's I think it's tainted. And if people want to listen to your podcast, what's the best way for them to find that? Well, it's 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 on you know the usual places: Podbean, iTunes, um, YouTube. Um, yeah, or or at my at my Patreon. Fantastic, James Dellingpole. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure and. We were thinking about going on to Patreon. We were just talking about that actually before Tim and I. So yeah, it's, it sounds it sounds fascinating. So we'd have to give that give that a look. So yeah, and we'll put links to all those places for you in the show notes. So if anyone's listening, they can click on those and go directly to them. So thanks once again, James. And, thank you. And it's been a pleasure. Uh, hope to have you on again. It'd be brilliant. Thank you. Oh, no, I loved it. Thank you thanks, so much, James. Take care. Thanks. Bye now. Okay. Bye bye. Brilliant stuff. Good stuff. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Tim. That was excellent. Thanks again. Take care now. See you soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye. And thank you so much for listening. Just a reminder, you can still enter our competition to win a book. All you have to do is listen to our 100th episode to get details. And we'll see you soon. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.